exhortation, you know, as uh, technically speaking, uh, not being an ordained minister, I, I, I'm not allowed to give sermons, but I am, an, I am allowed to give exhortations, so that is what you are going to have to deal with uh, this evening. Um, would you pray with me, please? Lord, <clears throat> as we come to your word, um, help us to dig into it. Help us to understand the unimaginable. Help us to comprehend that which is almost incomprehensible. Help us to revel in your majesty. Help us to walk in the blinding light of your truth. And help me, Lord, with feet of clay and ill-prepared as I am to speak justly and rightly of your word and to say the words that you would have me say and not those that I might wish to say. And would you, Lord, take this exhortation and turn it into that which glorifies you and builds up the flock. And I pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. <clears throat> Our text for this evening is very straightforward. It's uh, the seventh verse, the second chapter of Luke. And uh, please turn to it. You'll find it very familiar. Just one verse. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Amen. Well, this uh, text is... <clears throat> you can imagine why I chose it, given the evening that it is. Um, but I assure you that this is not... I don't intend to give a Christmas sermon what I intend to do is unpack this particular verse along with some others <clears throat> and to talk to you about Christ's humiliation. Now this particular verse is remarkable in its simplicity. It's very straightforward. It's a narrative. It, it's not difficult to comprehend. It has taken on a mythical status among many people, and it is compelling as a narrative. Now, we here, I trust, take this as fact. This is, you know, we, should, we ought to read scripture as it is written. Read poetry as poetry, <clears throat> prophecy as prophecy, and so forth. And historical statements as historical statements. Um, this is part of what uh, R.C. Sproul calls uh, reading scripture literally, taking it as it is written. And in this particular passage, Luke is reciting history. He's telling us what happened. So we, at least, will take it that way. But I guarantee you that there are very, great many people in this country celebrating Christmas Eve of, in one way or another who are taking this statement as myth. They think it's a comforting myth, and they think it's a nice narrative, but they take it as myth. 
And so it is. It is a compelling story. <clears throat> it is also incomprehensible. At least to me. Because who is being born? Who is it that's wrapped in the swaddling cloths and being laid in a manger? That's okay, Dean. Who is it? But who is Jesus? God. This is God being born. I think that is incomprehensible. I do not think there's any way until we cross the river and stand face to face with him that we will truly understand what this means and how it comes to pass. And even in our mortal flesh here on this globe, I don't think we can even come close to comprehending it without the aid of the Holy Spirit and without a regenerate heart. And those who do not, who lack those two things, will simply look at this as a cute and compelling myth. Oh, isn't that nice? The baby in the manger and all that. Those of us with regenerate hearts will understand that this is God putting on flesh, and this is how he chose to do it. And what does that mean to us? Well, <clears throat> this text is also, by the way, the culmination of what some people call the Advent season. Um, and I want to touch on that first. And, and not because I'm trying to, to um, uh, propose to you that we are celebrating the Advent season, because we're not, for, for good reason. But... To understand what is happening in this verse, I think we need to back up for a minute and consider Advent. Now, we're a church that holds to the Westminster standards and to the regulative principle of worship, and without beating it to death, what that means is that we do not practice a liturgical calendar other than every seventh day we hold the Lord's worship. Uh, and that's it. That's our liturgical calendar because that's what the Bible presents to us. Um, and a liturgical calendar would include an Advent season. And typically that begins, for those who celebrate it, that begins four Sundays prior to Christmas. Um, but we don't. And the Directory of Public Worship, which is part of our standards, reads as follows. There is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the gospel but the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days vulgarly known as holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. And thus, there is no warrant for an Advent season as a liturgical event. Um, in any event, <clears throat> the other problem with the Advent season is that it begins four, four Sundays before what is supposed to be the birth of Christ on the 25th of December, but, you know, that too is an invention of man. And about the only thing that we can say with certainty about the 25th of December is that's not when Jesus was born. We don't, in fact, know when he was born. And we can speculate on it all, all we like, but we're pretty certain that it was not the 25th of December. Um, and since it is an invention of man, it fits the description which we find in Westminster Confession of Faith in the 21st chapter of what is to be avoided. And I read, <clears throat> he, and in this case we're talking about 
the Trinitarian God, may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Well, Josh's sermon this morning spoke uh, much more eloquently than I ever could about the demands of an unpolluted faith and the problems that uh, such things as uh, Advent season and Christmas worship bring into our faith. And the 21st chapter of Westminster Confession is pretty clear. And I will sort of skip over the proofs on that, but you know, they are available to you if you want to look into them. We also know that the early church, while it celebrated Easter as a special holy day, uh, they, they did that, after all, on Sunday, on the Lord's Day. Um, but they did not celebrate Christmas, and there's no sign in the history of, early history of the church of Christmas being celebrated in any way, shape, or fashion until around uh, 600 A.D. So we know from that that clearly this is an invention because it was not present in the early church. And if God had wanted us to know the date on which Christ was born and had wanted us to celebrate it, surely it would have been clear in Scripture and then we would be doing it. But it is not in Scripture, and so we don't. And because Scripture gives us no firm date for the Incarnation, we're truly making it up if we affix Advent prior to Christmas. And as I said earlier, the, the, the birth of Christ is clearly a true story. I mean, we understand that. We, because we have our eyes having been opened. But much of the narrative about Christmas, again, as I mentioned, it takes on mythological proportions. The creches, the acting out, the... The, the mangers in the mall and all the rest of that stuff, uh, even amongst many well-meaning Christian churches, are simply myth. They have no basis in, in any sort of reality. And Advent as a season has been reduced to simply marking time before Christmas. The date of Christ's birth is immaterial. What's important is that he was born, that he took on flesh. And what's important for us is understanding what that means for us. Now, setting aside the placement of the Advent season in the liturgical calendar um, and, and the question of the value of a liturgical calendar at all, the Advent season of today bears little resemblance to what was practiced by medieval uh, Christians. Uh, it's of some interest, I think, that as it was originally construed, the season of Advent was to be a season of repentance and preparation for the second coming, not preparation for the birth. It was not supposed to be a countdown to Christmas, but a solemn recognition of his certain return. And the clue to this is the Greek word for Advent is parousia, 
which means, within, at least within the New Testament context, it means literally second coming. So the first coming, of course, was the incarnation. As John writes about it in the 14th verse of the first chapter, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, that verse is talking about the same exact thing which we read in Luke, 7th verse, 2nd chapter. This is what we need to celebrate every Sunday, every day in fact, and acknowledge in our worship, that our Lord and Savior, God himself, became flesh. The second coming is that which Apostle John cries out for in the next to last verse of the entire Bible, Revelations 20, uh, chapter 22, 22, verse 20, in which we read, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That's the prayer for the second coming. That's what the medieval Christians meant by Advent. And the idea of Advent as parousia, or second coming, implies that there has already been a first coming. It acknowledges, it looks back, it confirms that the incarnation has happened. And then it looks forward to that which will, which will happen in the future. And that tension between what has already happened and what is yet to come is embedded within this medieval idea of Advent. And properly understood, and not placed inside of a liturgical calendar, but just understood as this tension between what's already happened and what is yet to come, I submit that we ought to have Advent in our heart every day and not dismiss it as as this as I am explaining it here. This is an appropriate attitude for us to have, not just uh, for every day and not just the four weeks before Christmas. But now let's turn specifically to what we mean by incarnation. What is this, this, this thing which the Advent confirms, the incarnation? An essential to the idea of incarnation, to the action of the putting on of flesh, without which there would be no second coming. Indeed, if there is no first coming, then there will be no second coming. Essential to this is the humiliation of God. And this is where I'm almost at a loss for words. It is his humiliation that sets the stage for everything that follows and for our very salvation. Athanasius, the same man whose name was given to the Athanasian Creed found in the back of your hymnals, um, he wrote this somewhere in the 300s. He, and he's referring here to Christ, he manifested himself by means of a body in order that we might perceive the mind of the unseen Father. He endured shame from men 
that we might inherit immortality. In short, so many are the Savior's achievements that follow from his incarnation that to try to number them is like gazing at the open sea and trying to count the waves. Athanasius sees in the incarnation the act of humiliation. My sense is that the modern church, particularly in this country, does not look at it like that. In our current materialistic and narcissistic age, I think we often see the incarnation not as an act of humiliation, but if we consider it to be real at all, often evangelical churches look at it as an act of fellowship. Oh, look, he's become like us. Now he knows how we feel. How nice. He can understand our pains and our anxieties. It sells the price that Christ paid in his humiliation, woefully short. Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. The incarnation was essential to our salvation and to our adoption as sons of God. How can that be? Consider the humiliation of a potter becoming the pot. Imagine that that's even possible. Consider his humiliation in being born a human, in being born a creature fully human, while he certainly was still fully divine as a baby there in the manger, he was covered in sweat and blood, born amid stinking animals, not cute little camels and little boys and girls dressed up as shepherds, but he was born in about as squalid a condition as you could imagine. I am so grateful as an aside here, for my opportunity to visit Christians in Africa, because Africa is very close to the Old Testament. You have not seen squalor until you have seen African squalor. You don't know what it means. And yet, they have such faith. And it means that Christ can be incarnate in the most desperate of circumstances. And that certainly was the situation or Mary and Joseph in that stable. Consider also what it means for the immortal to become mortal. Or the lawgiver, the one who created the law and gave the law to suddenly put himself under the law. Or of the sinless to come to live under the law subject to it, and to live brushing shoulders, eating out of the same pot, living and breathing with those who sin by their very nature every day of their life. And that's where he came. That's what he did. And why did he do it? 
consider the holy. And you know you've heard the concept of the holy preached and taught from this pulpit many times and the idea of the holy is that which is without blemish. You cannot be sort of holy. It doesn't work like that. It's one of those one of those words that it's like being pregnant. You know, you can't be kind of pregnant. You either are or you aren't. Holy. You are either holy, completely, utterly holy, or you're not. And we, of course, are not holy. And yet he was and he came and lived among the broken. Who among us will voluntarily subject themselves to the least bit of humiliation? Who would do it? I mean, ask yourself. Humiliation means to reduce someone to a lower position in the eyes of others. Think of yourself in your workplace or parents or your children with your peers. I mean, who would do that? Even in the most, most benign circumstances, we resist it. And perhaps we do. I mean, every now and then maybe we fess up and we say we're sorry or we give something back or we whatever. I mean, maybe, maybe we do in some small way humble ourselves. But consider what it would mean for Christ to humble himself for us. And we are simply not made to do it. Our very sinful nature a resistance to God is found in our inability, our unwillingness, our resistance to being humbled. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 27, asks, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, is this. Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death on the cross, being buried, and continuing under the power of death for a time. There are, as you hear, many, many ways in which Christ humiliated himself, but it all began with his birth. It all began in the manger. And once again, I, I, I am struck with how overly familiar we are with his humiliation. We accept it. We see pictures of the cute little pink-faced Jesus. I mean, even if we don't want to, you know, we were confronted by them all the time and we, we just move on. But it's an abomination if you truly think about it, that God would become like us. Would you follow someone on this earth who meekly accepted his humiliation? Would you? Many Americans won't. Ted Turner, who um, the younger generation may not know who he is, but he founded CNN and was a famous, uh, rather godless liberal, uh, famously called Christians losers because they embraced humiliation. Part of a lot of politicians' appeals, I think, seems to me, 
to be that we, are, we find appealing those politicians who reject humility and demand satisfaction at every turn. What I've noticed in Africa is that the most popular pastors, not the best ones by any stretch, but the most popular ones, are the most flamboyant, the most in your faith. Face. And they even have a, a term for it. The, the big man pastor, and they, they do this. They say, you know, the big man like this. You know, you know what that means? It means you've got a pot belly. It means you're, you're displaying how wealthy you are in an impoverished society by walking around being overfed. And those are the people that are the most popular pastors. Why? They're not humble. They demand and they take. They don't give. Interestingly, one of the most effective arguments for the Muslim missionary movements among Christians, and, and there are, there is such a thing where Muslims seek to evangelize Christians, one of their most effective arguments is that our namesake is one who voluntarily demeaned and humbled himself and in the most abject fashion possible. Think about that. The Muslims say, why would you follow somebody who humbled himself? Why would you do that? That's a sign of weakness. It is simply not in our nature to accept humiliation. And whether, and it evidently, it is within God's nature because he did it. And this humiliation is the grounds of our salvation. In Isaiah 8, 19 to 22, we read of a people steeped in sin, just like us. And here's, here's what Isaiah says. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they shall be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Does that not sound a lot like our society today? But all is not lost because a few verses later we read of hope in Isaiah 9-2. You are very familiar with this passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Well, who is this light? What is this salvation that's being discussed? We go on in Isaiah, and a couple of verses later we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This is the incarnation, and the government will be upon his shoulder. The one who humbled himself will not sit atop the government, but will put the government upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Well, that's wonderful news. And it's clearly an incarnation, but where's the humiliation? Let me uh, 
conclude this by asking you all, grab your Bible and turn to Isaiah 53. And this is an extensive passage, but let's close tonight by uh, allowing me to read this, and you read along with me. Isaiah 53, let's pick this up on the second verse, and we'll read through verse 12. Here is the humiliation in all its agony. For she shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness when we see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. and The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors and bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is what the Incarnation made possible. This is why Mary placed that baby in the stable that night, whatever night it was, whenever it was. That's what happened. And that's why you and me and we are here tonight knowing that we are saved because of his work. So Advent, don't dismiss, dismiss it as a season if you like, but don't dismiss it as a concept. Acknowledging what has happened and looking forward to what will happen again. It's not about wreaths and candies and hallmark platitudes, we know that. It's about celebrating the incarnation, acknowledging his humiliation for our sakes.
looking back to the birth and forward to the second coming and our subsequent resurrection as creatures made whole and clean through the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we depart tonight and as we engage in whatever festivities and Christmas celebrations we have, which are all well and good, Lord, remind us, Lord, that you came in humiliation. You lived among the dung and the debris of a stable. You walked barefoot in poverty and you died in agony and you did this for us. And that was not a sign of weakness, but a sign of inestimable strength. And we are your flock. We are your people. And that strength, that assurance, is now attached to us because we call ourselves Christians.